Hello and welcome to the Life Enchanted Podcast. We're on a mission to optimize our lives through faith, health, wisdom, and much more. Thank you for joining us on our journey. Here now is our host, Nick Carlisle. What is good, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. As always, my name is Nick Carlisle. And I have the pleasure of being your host as we work together to optimize our lives through any means possible. This episode is brought to you by MyLifeEnchanted.com, which is my newly released website where you can find all things related to the Life Enchanted movement. I have my blog on there that I post to frequently. You can sign up for my email newsletter on there for exclusive content. You can connect to my social media accounts, check out some healthy snack recipes, visit the Creation Admiration Store and find out how you can help support what I'm doing through Patreon. There's a lot more on there as well. The website is constantly being updated and improved, and if you've liked any of the podcast episodes thus far, it's highly likely that you'll enjoy the content that is on there, especially the blog and the email newsletter. Also, please leave a rating and possibly a review of the podcast on whatever platform you're using. Your feedback helps other people discover the show and join the movement. For this episode, you guys are in for a real treat. I had the pleasure of having a conversation with PJ Nessler, who is the Director of Performance at Extreme Performance Training, or XPT. XPT is a company founded by Laird Hamilton and his wife, Gabby Reese. Laird is one of the best big wave surfers to ever live, and Gabby is one of the greatest volleyball players to ever live. PJ is Gabby and Laird's right-hand man for XPT, and the dude is super knowledgeable about a variety of things related to physical health and peak performance. He coaches extremely high-level athletes and top performers around the globe, and after listening to this interview, you will definitely see why. We talk about breath, we talk about posture, we talk about hot and cold therapy, and a host of other things. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation as much as I did, and I hope you learn from this conversation as much as I did. This was one of my favorite discussions I've ever had, and I'm super stoked that you guys are a part of it. So without further ado, PJ Nestler, ladies and gentlemen. PJ, we're live, man. Thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate you being here. Nice. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, man. So I want to get right into it because there's a lot I want to talk to you about, and I know we have a time constraint, but the first thing I want to focus on is XPT, which stands for Extreme Performance Training and is the company you work for. How did that company come about, and what is the company trying to accomplish? XPT really started from uh, the exploration of, of our founders, Laird Hamilton and Gabby Reese, just through their their careers as professional athletes and then uh, continuing to want to live a high performance lifestyle, even though they're not really competing in professional sports, although Laird is still chasing mega waves and surfing <laughs> every single day. Um, so it was really just an, an evolution in their training, their mindset, their, the practices that they, they incorporated into their life to keep themselves operating at their highest potential physically and mentally, emotionally. Uh, and then just grew into a, a group of, like-minded individuals who'd get together at Larry and Gabby's pool and train together and kind of, uh, try new things. And then, uh, XPT as a company officially started, uh, three years ago to 2015. So almost four years ago now, uh, where they just said like, Hey, we're, we're having such great, you know, people are feeling so amazing doing the stuff that we're doing. And we have this tight knit community 
we want to bring this stuff out to more people. So they started inviting groups of people over to run these little retreats, uh, which we call experiences. And that was just for people to get plugged into the XPT lifestyle for three days. Uh, and that's kind of where the whole thing was founded on. And, and then from that, after about two years of that, they realized that they were only able to impact a f- you know, a, a very small number of people per year because we only run five or six experiences with 25 people. So they wanted to start getting this information out to more people. And that's when they brought, uh, the, the idea was to build a certification program where we could start taking the principles and, and leaking them out and getting them into coaches and trainers and physical therapists and doctors and all different uh, fitness and, and health professionals to be able to implement into their practice. And that's what they hired me for about uh, two years ago to kind of take all the awesome stuff they were doing in these retreats and all the amazing things that are in Laird and Gabby's minds and try to put it into a system and framework that can be taught to people uh, who can go then teach it to thousands more people. So really the ultimate goal of the company is, is to take all of this stuff that was designed to help people be the most versatile and resilient human beings possible and to get it out there so that we can help people live a high performance or what we call an extreme performance lifestyle. That's super cool. So does attending one of these experiences, does that get you certificated or is there a different session that you have to attend or what does that look like? It's a different track. So the, the experience is more of what we call uh, consumer focused and experiential. Mm. Uh, you learn a ton, but it's not education driven. Whereas the certification is education, it's lecture material, it's a 300 page manual, it's 200 something research studies. So it's very much geared towards education, whereas the experience is more for consumers who want to come learn some stuff they can apply to their life. The certification is for professionals who want to go coach and teach this to other people. And and certainly consumers can come to it uh, as long as they're a little bit knowledgeable in some of the science because it is pretty deep in, in the science. Mm-hmm. But um, those, so we kind of have two different tracks in our business. We've, we've got the more experiential stuff mm-hmm. and then we've got the uh, education stuff, which is to help people then go teach it to others. That's super interesting. You guys are just hitting right now, as far as like the, the certifications, you're just hitting like major cities. How many times a year are you doing that? Yeah, we're shooting for somewhere between 12 to 15 okay. uh we're, we're hitting at least one a month some months we're hitting two of them uh and that's our level one certification so yeah we're, we're hitting just a few major cities really just places that we've had our target places that we go is either one where we have a, a big interest um or two most of the places we go is people come out to la and do our cert and then they go back to atlanta and say hey i want to bring this course out here to my community Mm. And they help. But the challenging part for us is our level one course. We go through pool training with weights, ice yeah. baths, saunas, uh, breathing. So our logistics are very challenging. It's not like a normal course where you just find the gym for a day and yeah. teach it. Uh, so for us, it's wherever we can find the logistics to, to put together something that's at the standard we set. Got uh, you. But the, the biggest ones we run right now are in L.A. with those ones we sell out most of the time, but that's where we've got most of our following. And we also have a lot of the ideal logistics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, We're also launching, that was just our level one course we launched last year, which is kind of an intro to all the foundations of XPT. Uh, We're launching like four more courses this year, uh, some more specialized courses 
an online performance breathing only course, a water only course, um, and then some next level uh, deeper courses as well. That's sweet. W- will that online course get you certificated? Yeah, you'll be a certified performance breathing coach. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the goal for that was to try to get it out to as many people as possible because we have a lot of people, especially people interested in the breath. And I think the breath yeah. is the most powerful thing that we teach and the most applicable across the spectrum of, I mean, there's not a single person on the planet that can't be improved the way that they breathe. Mm-hmm. So it's super applicable. Um, but yeah, they'll, they'll, they will be certified just in the breathing sense. Cool. Let's, let's dive into breathwork a little bit because I've, I've been super fascinated with the subject for about a year now. I haven't gotten too deep uh, down the rabbit hole, but I do practice every morning. I do some Wim Hof breath work like right after I wake up. I meditate for like 12 minutes and then I do some Wim Hof breathing and then carry that right into a little circuit workout um, just to get the day going and kind of get like a natural physiological change before I put foreign substances in my body and whatnot. But what is the average person underestimating about the breath and, and why is the breath such an integral part of XPT? Um, I mean, I think people are underestimating the fact that it, probably the biggest question that we get is, do you really have to teach people how to breathe? Mm. Um, you know, people like to say, well, well, don't we know how to do that? I mean, I breathe every day. But the reality is, and, and what I try to tell people is, we are the only species on the planet who has evolved to live a lifestyle that does not match our biology. So, what do you example, mean by that? You don't, yeah. But what I mean is, you're you learn how to breathe. I mean, you're you have all of these, your ability to move, your ability to breathe, all of those things are are innate. We were born with that. However, you know, a a lion is born with that, and then they live a lifestyle that matches their biology, and they continue to do those things. We, from the time we're five years old, start sitting down in desks in school all day, start sitting in chairs and in cars and eating abundant diets. We have all of the technology and the conveniences we have in our life has evolved way faster than our biology can. Mm -hmm. So the reason we need to teach people how to move and fix their posture is because they're not doing what their biology was designed to do. They're sitting all day long. So the same reason we need to teach people how to do that stuff is the same reason we need to teach people how to breathe. Because a lot of people lose that function by living sedentary lives, by sitting too often, having poor posture and positions, uh, maybe experiencing some physical trauma. Because the other side of it is it's not a common thing that's taught in the medical profession. You don't learn a lot about this stuff. So, you know, if I bang my shoulder up in high school football, what do I do? I go to a physical therapist, I rehab it so it gets back to the regular function it was supposed to have, and I go back to living my life, at least in theory. Well, if I get what happened to me freshman year of football, I took a helmet to the gut that, that broke two of my ribs, and I couldn't really eat or breathe for about a week. <laughs> Nobody retaught me how to breathe. I didn't do breathing therapy. I just went back to what I was doing. So we know that if I hadn't rehabbed my shoulder, I would create compensatory patterns that would probably stay with me the rest of my life. Same thing goes for breathing. So if you experience some kind of physical trauma or even emotional trauma that affects breathing patterns, you live with that dysfunction and build on that dysfunction for the rest of your life. So Hmm. that's why I think people underestimate it so much. Um, And the reason it's so important and so integral is it's the foundation of life and it affects every system and cell in the entire body. So, if you're looking at something that you're doing 
15 to 40,000 times per day, depending on where you're at on that spectrum. Uh, and it influences every single cell and system in your body. It's such an important piece and, and it's such a foundational piece of, of living an optimal life. Yeah, that's good. It makes me think of, I'm not sure if you've read Aubrey Marcus's book. I'm pretty sure everyone in this industry kind of has at least glanced at it, but he says in that yeah. book at one point that, um, the solution to a lot of the issues that we're facing has literally been right under our nose this whole time, referring to the breath. And I think he was quoting <laughs> someone else that said that, and that's always kind yeah. of stuck with me. But but what are some basic things that just like the average person can start focusing on and applying to enhance their breath life? Just basic, <laughs> like not even advanced ventilation or anything like that. I mean, the two simplest things you can do, uh, I'll give you the three simplest things anybody can do right now is start focusing on breathing through their nose as much as you can. Hmm. And the first thing people are going to say is, well, what about this? Well, what about this? There's a lot of scenarios where we want, we should breathe in other ways, but step one, start breathing through your nose as much as you can. It's kind of like, well, how should I lose a hundred pounds? Well, there's a lot of advanced strategies we can use. Step one, start being active, yeah. get off the couch, go for a walk, walk around the room, do whatever, just do something. So that's step one. Start is is that because, is that because the, the breath is slower and it's more focused maybe, and it kind of just like keeps you calm and is more, um, intentional. That's one of the reasons. Absolutely. But also the, from a physiology standpoint, the nose is, is the primary breathing pattern that, uh, activates the, helps activate the diaphragm, which is going to be step two. We're going to talk about, um, to help people take a big, deeper belly breath and to actually use the diaphragm the way they're supposed to, mm. which a lot of people don't. Uh, it actually, there's an, a gas that pools in the nasal cavity called nitric oxide that we, that when we pull it down to the lungs, it, it helps to balance out our oxygen and our carbon dioxide. Um, it has a whole bunch of antibacterial uh, or anti uh, fights off pathogens. Mm. Um, and like you mentioned, it helps to it helps to slow the breath and balance the air that's going in and out, which is an important thing to control uh, the respiratory gases, the respiratory gas exchange that happens in the body that helps us to use oxygen. Um, awesome. So it's a, and it's also been shown to improve uh, parasympathetic tone, mm. which we know a lot of people today. That's a big thing they need. I mean. You could literally change people's lives by just getting them to calm down. Yeah, you know, that's why meditation is such a big thing. Yeah, um, and the the breath is a trigger to so many of those things, and, and the nose is a really simple way to start doing things. And, and, it, and another thing it does is it makes you so much more intentional on your breath because it brings mindfulness and awareness to it. Mm. Because if you're not good at breathing through your nose, if you're not doing it often, let's say you go for a light jog and you start focusing on breathing through your nose. You're not going to be just mindlessly jogging, thinking about other things because it might be challenging for you mm -hmm. and it'll, it'll start working on improving efficiency. You'll actually build some strength in the respiratory muscles as you start to really give them the, the demand that they need to work the right way. Uh, so there's, I mean, and then you can even tie that stuff down into like posture and nervous system tension. You know, mm -hmm. you, you, we have research studies showing people fixing tight hamstrings and I'm doing air quotes when I say tight, but short, tight hamstrings, uh, and improving toe touch testing by just engaging the diaphragm and breathing. Right. 
Wow. So there's there's just so much stuff. And same thing goes for back pain. I mean, most common thing that people complain about. I think 85% of people will complain of or will suffer from the severe back pain or whatever it is at some point in their life. So back pain, shoulder pain, neck pain, so many of these things are tied, can be tied to the way we breathe. So Mm. Sorry, that was a little rant there. No, a I love tangent, it. but I love tangents. So, um, you mentioned parasympathetic and that contrast with sympathetic, and I'm assuming that's going to get brought up multiple times in this episode. So, just for listeners, real quick, can you just explain the difference of those two terms? Yeah. So, really, sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system activity are just names for a cascade of physiological uh, effects that. Uh, happen or responses. So your sympathetic response or your sympathetic nervous system is is what's referred to as your fight or flight. And when we trigger that, we end up with increased heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate, where your body starts respond, uh, recruiting all the systems that are necessary to escape from danger or fight it off. Uh, and And that doesn't just mean physical danger, but your body responds to any stress with that same thing. Exercise, work stress, physical stress, danger, all of that fear, anxiety, all of those things trigger that same physiological response, uh, which is a super important thing. But I always tell people the sympathetic nervous system is like cranking into fifth gear. Mm -hmm. You want to have it there when you need it. If you need to race that car off the light or you need to get around something, you need to crank it up and, and get past them. But if you just try to drive in that for your entire life, which a lot of us do, uh, you're going to break down because you're, your car can't handle that. So you've got to be able to shift back down if you want to really go far. Yeah. Um, and that's your, your parasympathetic nervous system, which is your rest and digest state. And that, that is where your body is functioning at its most optimal level of homeostasis, which is really what your biology is designed for to keep you at this level of homeostasis where all systems are working at their most optimal levels. Got you. Got you. Thank you for that. So step one, breathe through the nose. Step two. Step two is learn to breathe into the belly. Uh, because so many people breathe into their upper chest and in, in this extension pattern that creates just a cascade of negative effects on posture, on breathing, on respiratory gases, on sympathetic activity, just, uh, it's completely backwards. We call it vertical breathing. When you start to breathe and your chest rises forward and up or the shoulders elevate. Um, and it happens a lot because again, where do we spend most of our time when we sit down with bad posture, we only have the ability to breathe into that chest. So we raise the shoulders to expand the lungs because we can't pull down with the diaphragm to expand the lungs we are supposed to. So I tell people to learn how to breathe horizontally instead of vertically. So think about the belly. And when I say belly, I mean the whole abdomen, 360 degrees. Think about all of that expanding horizontally on the inhale versus going vertical. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, that's step one. There's there's 15 more points we can go to with that and, and situational breathing patterns and stuff. But if you're just talking about learning how to optimize your breath, start breathing through the nose, start focusing on breathing into your belly and and breathing horizontally. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I think, I'm not sure if you said it on a YouTube video or on a different podcast, but, um, that something that kind of stuck with me in regards to that horizontal breathing is, is your rib cage actually expanding? And if someone had their hands on your sides, they could feel your rib cage expanding outward. 
And if you uh, if you try to breathe like that, it is a whole different type of breath than, like you said, what what we're just typically doing as we're just going throughout our day. Um, so yeah. it might be good for the listeners to just attempt and see the difference. For sure. And we, we call that Superman breathing. Um, and usually what we start with is belly breathing. So the hand on the chest and the hand on the belly and just getting the belly to move first because a lot of people can do that if you really lay them on their back and slow it down. But as soon as you start doing some faster breathing, which is the way they breathe or breathe through the mouth like they do in normal life, even when I tell them to do it, they most people, I mean, I have probably 30% of the coaches who come to our course, we spend four hours going through the all of the stuff about this. And then we get into our first practical. And as soon as I add a stressful breathing pattern, like breathing faster or in the nose, out the mouth or any of that stuff, 30% of them still can't control it. And they have, these are people with pretty good body awareness and control. Um, so you can imagine what general population people look like when they do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what I start with is the belly. If they can get the belly, that's step one. It's not the end goal though. Uh, then I start working on expanding the ribs, expanding the low back. Um, so that's the way to think about it. Just gotcha. anywhere you can breathe into that lower abdomen and get expansion 360 degrees around from the belt buckle up to the, the sternum, mm-hmm. anywhere in there you can start to get expansion. It is a huge step in the right direction. Is, is that breathing it? are you able to form that into just a natural habit? Like, do you breathe like that throughout your day just naturally because you've done it so many times? Or is it something that people will for the rest of their life kind of have to bring attention to just because they've built this, you know, pathway in their, in their body already of breathing incorrectly? No, it's absolutely something that you can train yourself to do habitually. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard for me to say that I do it subconsciously because I'm obviously when I'm aware of it, I'm always belly breathing. Uh, when I've been tested by other people, I I do it pretty well. But obviously, when I'm aware of it, I'm, I'm focusing on it and controlling it. So it's hard to say what I always do subconsciously. But I, I think the biggest thing you can do is just when you start focusing on it, you become so aware. You know, think about you, what you're trying to do is retrain these patterns. And I, I tell people, when it comes to motor patterning and, and creating these neurological connections in the brain and the body for something like breath, it's similar to like running. You know, if I taught you, or, or let's say you're driving home, a lot of times you drive home from work and you're thinking about something else and you're like, how the hell did I just get home? Mm-hmm. Cause you could subconsciously take that path on the way home. But if all of a sudden there was a detour, you'd have to be very engaged and figure out where you're going and look at directions. And your brain is super involved in that. Now, if you took that detour if if tomorrow there was an emergency at your house and you had to leave work, you would subconsciously 100% go the way that you've driven for the past 20 years. But if we rode, if we start driving down that detour path and we do that dozens of times per day or in the sense of breathing, 20 to 40,000 times per day, then you're going to start to retrain those neural associations and all of a sudden – couple hundred thousand trips down that path that becomes your new path but it takes conscious control and practice because you're habitually doing it anyway and that's why it's challenging with fixing things like breathing or posture uh or walking because you're already getting so many reps that you've got to be very conscious if i just do five minutes of breathing in the morning and then i breathe like shit for the rest of the day and night Mm -hmm. i'm taking a quarter step forward and 40,000 steps backwards. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, it'll take a long time, but that being said, 
with focus practice, it changes relatively quickly. So it just takes, it takes awareness all the time throughout the day, uh, early on and just, just being aware, just noticing when I'm sitting here on my computer, I'm having this conversation. You asked me about my breathing and I noticed I was kind of slouched down in my chair and I fixed my posture. Mm, Those little things go a really long way. Um, but it just comes to having that awareness. Mm -hmm. Um, how about four, eight breathing or one, two breathing? I've heard you refer to what exactly is that? And when is it most applicable? So the, yeah, the, the protocol you're just, you're referring to is what we call uh, cadence breath or, or our recovery breathing. And that's where you, we have a one to two ratio of inhale to exhale. And the goal of that protocol specifically, <clears throat> it's one of our foundational methods because you can really adapt it to, to fit a lot of different things. Uh, for example, I could make that a super advanced protocol and, and challenge your, your carbon dioxide tolerance with that. But generally speaking, we use it mostly to help people to calm down. Mm. Uh, and the, one of the big reasons for that is um, the exhale is, is, a, is more parasympathetic. So we talked about the different branches of mm-hmm. autonomic nervous system. Inhales are generally more sympathetic. Exhales are more parasympathetic. And you show, so, I, I, I heard that you actually saw that visually when you hooked people up to heart rate monitors, had them do some breath work and noticed that during their exhale, their heartbeat in fact was decreasing, right? Yeah. Yeah. You can watch. I mean, if you get into a calm state and you just sit with a heart rate monitor, a chest strap heart rate monitor, or you could probably do a wrist one if you're, if you're not active. Uh, we were doing it with the chest strap and we were just, this was for our filming for our certification. So we had his heart rate up on the screen. Mm. And we were just looking at the way the heart rate responds during the breathing. Uh, and it's very minimal, but what you'll see is about a two or three beat increase during the inhale and then a two or three beat decrease during the exhale. Um, and really it's the inhale is, is sympathetic because everything goes into contraction. The respiratory muscles contract, things pull down, things are engaged to pull that air in. And then as we exhale, everything goes back into its relaxed state. Mm. And actually, at the pause at the end of the exhale is one of the most relaxed uh, positions or, or, or states you can be in. So where there's a where there's a pause between inhale and exhale, the respiratory muscles, the inhalation and exhalation muscles, all of this stuff reaches this kind of pause state of um, relaxation. So it's actually a great way to, to induce a parasympathetic relaxing response. But We've seen in research in, in a handful of studies that exhales help to de- to increase parasympathetic activity or decrease sympathetic activity, uh, and then seven plus exhales of longer than seven seconds were shown to be even more superior at uh, decreasing sympathetic activity. So lowering blood pressure, improving HRV, uh, lowering heart rate, all of these things that are in sync with. Um, improve parasympathetic tone. So that pattern that we use is a really simple pattern for people to uh, stay focused on and to help get them into a calm, controlled state. And we use it. It's part of our post-workout recovery protocol. It's part of our uh, travel protocol. It's part of our bedtime protocol. And we just, Mm. we shift the, we shift the protocols different, uh, excuse me, the, the tempos around slightly, but the principle underlies in a lot of that stuff um it's part of our tactical breathing protocol that we developed for military law enforcement first responders to use on like in states of high stress for example 
law enforcement officers to use. And, and I was just working with a guy who runs uh, training at the police academy out in Atlanta. And we were talking about ways to implement into what they do, where it would actually flash up on the screen. When, when they get a call, the sirens turn on, that protocol flashes on the screen. Oh, wow. So that it, as soon as they get into that, because um, for them, it's about controlling states of stress. It's controlling the physiological states of arousal mm-hmm. in high stress situations. So that's super cool. Um, and my UFC fighters use that, use that four, eight protocol when they're walking to the octagon. Mm. So it's so applicable across a lot of different spectrums and it's really easy. You know, yeah. there's a lot of ways we can do that, but that one's super easy to remember. So you tell people to inhale for three, exhale for six or inhale for four, exhale for eight and just follow that pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then eventually if they learn it, I tell them keep that one to two ratio and go wherever you want with it. I'm assuming that the higher the number, so like a four to eight is more um, parasympathetic than a two to four. Um, yes and no. It's very individual. So, for example, if you look at some of the research on uh, what's called resonant frequency, which what they basically did was they took people and, and attached them to biofeedback machines, and there's oscillations from in every system in the body um and when these oscillations match that's when your body is at its most homeostasis uh so when these frequencies of these oscillations match so what they did is they had hooked people to these biofeedback machines that were showing the frequencies of heart rate or, or cardiovascular system and they had a little a little thing they could follow on the screen where they would inhale and exhale following these waves to start matching their breathing with the oscillations of the um, cardiovascular system. And what they found was when they were actually able to match these breathing cycles together, that was the best, uh, that was the best overall result they got in decreasing sympathetic activity. And I think specifically they were looking at HRV, blood pressure and heart rate response. Mm. Um, And what they found in that is on average, it was somewhere between four and a half to six breaths per minute that, that people seem to be in that state. Gotcha. So I would say it's not necessarily, it's kind of like everything. There's, there's definitely diminishing returns. That's why I start people off in usually the three in six out or the four in eight out range. Cause it kind of keeps them in that five to six breaths per minute, uh, cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, however I do, uh, when I go into the ice bath, for example, and I need to control my breath, my favorite pattern is five second inhale, 10 second exhale, which is only four breaths per minute, but it's a great way that helps me get, stay parasympathetic while I'm in the ice bath um, and helps me to kind of keep my time when I'm in there. So there, it is it is slightly individual, uh, but more is not always better. So 20 second inhale and 40 second exhale is probably not <laughs> going to be more parasympathetic than a, than a, a four, eight would be for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. It's kind of, I guess, um, like diet, it's not one, one size fits all. You kind of have to figure out what works best for you. So the, the, the one to two ratio, that's good for like, I mean, I'm going to throw out some things here and tell me if, if I'm wrong, some situations where people can apply this, but like right before a public speaking engagement, um, trying to fall asleep. Absolutely. Um, after a, a hard workout, I'm assuming, um, how about during a hard workout, like in between sets? 
so that we've got a, a really specific protocol that we use to kind of recover depending on the intensity. Uh, but the simplest way to think about it is as soon as you can start to breathe in through the nose and out through the mouth is fine and slow the exhales, the quicker you'll recover. Okay. So my athletes, the first step for them in focusing on their breathing during recovery was I have ways that they can try to breathe to get to breathing through the nose because there's certain times if you're at a maximum intensity, you're not going to be able to probably breathe in through the nose because you just need to move more air. Mm -hmm. um, but the quicker they can get to inhaling through the nose and exhaling through the mouth and then starting to slow the exhales. So inhaling the nose and out the mouth is going to help balance out blood gases, which is kind of step one. And then when you start slowing the exhales, you'll start seeing heart rate dropping. Gotcha. So should the end goal count. be, sorry, should the end goal be to go in the nose out the nose uh i'd say generally yes but but a lot of times it won't be because if let's say i'm doing it so yesterday i did a pool workout and i was doing a pretty high intensity interval followed by a, a minimum rest period where i had to recover my breathing because the next part of the swim was a breath hold mm -hmm. um and what i was i never got back to all through the nose even though i probably could it wasn't really necessary because my body was still active you know if my heart rate i'd say was probably in the 130 120 to 130 range before i went for my next interval so i wasn't down to like my normal 80 beats per minute where i'm you know walking around throughout the day uh so for me it was the goal was just in the nose out the mouth keep slowing it down keep slowing it down keep slowing it down and then i didn't go back to breathing through the nose uh, because i still wanted to keep clearing out carbon dioxide before I went into my next breath hold. Yeah. Um, but I'd say generally speaking, if you can get to breathing all through the nose and it's not stressful, then you're in a, you've gotten back to a rested state for sure. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of contextual, like during a workout, you probably want, like, as you were describing with your pool workout, you want to move a lot of air and get that carbon dioxide out. But prior to a public speaking engagement, you, if you could get to in the nose, out the nose, that means you're pretty calm and chilling for what you're about to do yeah anything that doesn't require a high physical demand in and out the nose is the best thing you can do yeah. so in the ice bath in and out we go in and out the nose uh public speaking falling asleep all of those things in and out the nose is is, is the ideal pattern mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so you've brought up posture a couple times and i know that that is pretty much the first thing even before breath that you touch on with a lot of your clients can you just talk about that a little bit you've given some detail to it but just give a couple minutes of of the importance of posture um and and what's going wrong with that sure so i think posture just like breathing uh you know when people talk about posture it, people get stuck on two ends of the spectrum. So I'll kind of give you where, where my thought process is, but really there's a, there's a way that your body is designed to move. And when certain joints are lined up a certain way, they can move at their most optimal function. Uh, when they're not, when certain muscles are overworked or when certain things are, are in the wrong position, what I tell people is it, when we add training to that, then we start to strengthen the dysfunction and that's where injuries happen. Mm. And with our goal of building resilient human beings, anytime we strengthen dysfunction, we're going to, we're going to take away from our end goal of building people who are versatile and resilient. 
uh, whether they're elite athletes or average Joes, nobody's going to the gym to beat themselves up so that they can get injured down the road. However, I would say most people are going to the gym and beating themselves up so they get injured down the road. Uh, they don't have that intent, but they just don't know any better. And the reason our a lot of people's posture suffers is the same reasons our breathing suffers. We start sitting down all the time and step one, that starts to lead to certain muscles getting tighter and shorter, certain muscles becoming loose and weak uh, or, or just inactive, more dormant. And then rib cage is getting restricted. Things that were supposed to move, starting to not move like my rib cage and my thoracic spine. All of these things start to stiffen up because your body will adapt to whatever you feed it the most. So if I want to have perfect posture, but I spend 10 hours a day sitting in a chair hunched over, my body will adapt to that. I could spend an hour a day training in perfect posture, but 10 hours versus one hour, my body's going to adapt to that stimulus that I fed it the most. And eventually my posture will get destroyed. And then what we do on top of that is we, we add to dysfunction by just not thinking about it and going and doing things that are, that maybe naturally feed that poor posture. So yeah. that's a big step that we work on with people is just learning how to get in the right positions and learning what they feel like. Cause a lot of us just have a, a huge disconnect with our bodies. We don't have, you know, the normal person has almost zero kinesthetic awareness and mind body connection. You know, if you ask them to think about how they feel when they eat a certain food or how they feel when they breathe, people are like, what? I've never even thought of that. Um, so to kind of develop that is step one. And then to understand what positions you should be in, especially under load, because you know, and the reason I said there's two kind of ends of the spectrum in posture is you get people who get too focused on posture and they think everything needs to be neutral spine, anatomical position. But the reality is you should have movement variability. You should have breathing variability. You should have the ability to flex and extend and rotate the spine and laterally flex and do all this kind of different stuff. It's just when we start adding load or volume to those things, and those are what I call our elements of chaos, those are things that we add during exercise, and we add them to challenge good posture, good position, good joint mechanics, good range of motion. And when we do that, we build resilience because – that's one of the best ways to improve resilience is, is get in those really good positions in a lot of different ways and then challenge them with different intensities and speeds and uh, loads and um, volumes. But most people don't do it again. They don't exercise with that intent. They exercise with the intent of did I lift this much weight or, or did this person see me doing this or did I get a good shot from my Instagram or <laughs> did I just check the workout off the lit, you know, check that box that I went to the gym and th because they don't have that intent, it's just like, okay, I did 10 reps or I lifted this weight. And then instead of building that resilience, they're, they're building dysfunction. Yeah. And then they pay the price down the road. But the reason a lot of people don't know is they don't see the residual effects of their training because we, our medical system is designed to, pinpoint the straw that broke the camel's back so yeah. when you blow out your you blow out your shoulder because you went and started hitting tennis balls with your daughter and you're like oh my god what's wrong with my shoulder you just look at it as like oh i can't play tennis anymore 
when in the reality is no, it was the crap you've been doing in the gym and in your office and everywhere else for the past 10 years that grinded that tire down. And then the blowout was when you played tennis, but that wasn't, that's the problem you're going to address today, but that's not really the root of it. That's good, man. That's so good. People need to hear that. What are some practical things that the average person can start focusing on with their posture? Uh, probably the simplest one is think about the positions you spend most of your time in and do things that are the opposite. <laughs> so if you spend, and, and let's use the general person spends most of their time sitting, if you spend most of your time sitting and a lot of times shoulders rounded forward, hunched over, the best thing you could do is go to the gym and think about things that are the opposite of that. So spend some time doing things that help extend the hips. So you're flexed at the hips, do things that extend the hips, all different types of glute training because the glutes are the muscle that mm. gets dormant when we sit on them all the time. So do hip extensions and do deadlifts and do RDLs and do anything developed. To, and really the simplest way to look at it is just think about the posterior side of your body because that's the stuff that doesn't really get worked much. So mm. I tell people, like when people come to our experiences and we do a gym workout, our gym workout we did in Kauai last in our last experience was deadlifts, T, uh, TRX or, or inverted row, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> thoracic mobility, different loaded carry variations, and hip mobility. That was our whole workout. And like a farmer's was, walk, you mean? Like the uh, yeah, farmer's walk and and overhead carries and different mm -hmm. stuff like that, and and a core exercise. And again, the goal was a lot of these people who come to this stuff are executives and, and <clears throat> we're trying to instill this stuff in them. So if you could do that, start doing a lot of rowing, a lot of pulling, anything that's designed to, to pull your shoulders backwards mm -hmm. um, and then start opening up the things that, that don't move well anymore. Your hips, your shoulders, your thoracic spine. Uh, if you start moving those things around and, and a, do it in the gym for sure, but also block out some time throughout the day and do it. It doesn't have to be an hour yoga session. I have a timer I set when I'm sitting down and I know I'm going to be doing eight straight hours of writing content. And I set a timer for 90 minutes just to make sure every 90 minutes I get up and do something, mm -hmm. something opposite of what position I was in. So maybe it's just some, lunges and open my hips up or some thoracic mobility for me it's my thoracic spine that gets really locked up so i do extensions on a foam roller i do some rotations uh, i'll do some shoulder stuff or i'll just move around uh even if i just get up and walk around go go walk down the street and back do a little breathing on my walk there clear my mind come back and get back to work uh you know a three minute break every 90 minutes can can go a really long way yeah so those are the simple things yeah, that's good. I, we haven't even touched on the mental aspect of posture as well. And I know there's a lot of people talking about this, like Tony Robbins touch on touches on this quite a bit, just how posture is the easiest way to induce confidence. And how you never see people who are slunched over, like think of the kids at your high school or whatever that are walk, walking around slunched over, have their head down. Those kids are never confident and those kids are never outgoing and those kids are never sure of themselves. And that also translates to adults, but people who are standing upright, who have their chin up, who are looking at you in the eyes, um, 
those people exude confidence and that that has a mental connection and and can really help people mentally to to be more outgoing and be more confident which is super interesting um i know there's a lot of studies as well that that have been done with people they'll bring a, a different control groups into a room and they'll have one one group stand with like their hands up like in victory um and like they're looking up towards the sky and like you know after you win a race you put your hands up like yeah i won so they'll have people uh, assume that position and then can't remember exactly what it was but i want to say they did something with like confidence in a bet like they were betting on something and then rating their confidence on their bet and then the, they had people do the opposite come in and kind of slouch over in a chair and then place a bet and then talk about their confidence in the bet and the results were that the people who were standing with their hands up they were like you know, 60% more confident in their bets and actually got their bets like 60% more correct than the people who were slunched over and also doing the same type of betting. So there's definitely a mental connection to that as well. For sure. I, I've never read that study, but that's that sounds really interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the way to think about that always is your brain creates neurological connections with everything. Your, your brain is a shortcut machine. So Every time you do something, it creates shortcuts designed to help you do that quicker and faster so it doesn't have to think about it. And it creates those neurological connections with everything. The way you the way you breathe during a stressful situation becomes the way you breathe in stressful situations. And then when you pull those things apart, you start breathing that way, it creates a stressful situation. So same thing with posture. You know, think about the times that you're in those shelled off postures. We're scared, we're afraid, we're un- uncomfortable. So we get into these parasympathetic postures which are flexion positions uh you know rounded over slunched over or even the most parasympathetic the fetal position on the ground Mm. and then when we're in sympathetic positions those are extension based positions so the brain has those neurological connections and we teach that both ways we teach people to actually use posture to help improve that and to be more confident to be to improve sympathetic activity and we teach them the opposite. When when we get when I get my athletes into the post workout recovery, we put them into flexion positions because we know that those are more parasympathetic, and we want to trigger that response. So, those neurological connections. What's the saying? I can't remember who says it, but um, neurons that fire together wire together. Yeah. So every time you start doing things together, your brain starts wiring those systems together, and then you take one of them out in isolation. I mean, that's why people who, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but (laughs) there's a, yeah, there's a lot of stuff there. Yeah. A lot of really important stuff there. It's good. One last thing on that is I heard someone say that every time they walk through a doorway, which you can imagine you're walking through probably hundreds of doorways a day, they, they've made it a habit to check their posture. So every time they, they walk through any type of doorway, they make sure that they adjust their posture to, to what they think is correct. So that could be an easy hack for someone to start implementing. Yeah. Um, yeah, that self-awareness is, is, is massive key. Yeah. There's all, there's tons of exercises you can do to fix all these things, but without the self-awareness to create, to make it habitual, uh, you'll, you'll always take a step forward and two steps back. Yeah. Yeah. So another big part of the XBT program is acute hot and cold exposure, such as ice baths and sauna usage and whatnot. And I previously (laughs) did an episode on the podcast of some of the physiological benefits of those practices, such as acute cold and acute heat exposure. But 
I want to get your thoughts on why those things are important and why those are such an integral part of the program as well. Yeah, so we look at exposures. Uh, it's kind of the same way we look at exercise. We we have it in our recovery section, um, but really we use it for a lot of different stuff. And I don't like people to get stuck on, you know, a lot of people get stuck on ice baths are for recovery. And that's because a lot of the research has been focused on that with athletes. Um, but that's not the only reason that we use them, nor is it the best method for recovery in general. Um, <clears throat> but we look at it as the same way as exercise. So these are stresses to the system. Anytime you apply a specific stress to the system, as long as you apply the right time and type of recovery, you're going to create adaptations. You're, you're, again, your, your biology is designed to keep you at that homeostasis. As soon as we pull you off homeostasis, you have systems and processes and gene programs and all this stuff that's in your body to get you back to that homeostasis. And then the more we pull you off of it in this, with that same stimulus, let's say it's an ice bath, the more your body's going to say, okay, I'm sick of getting pulled off my homeostasis. I need to build back stronger. And that way I'm more resilient to this the next time I face it. And we all know that with exercise. If I lift 10 pounds today, I go in next week, I lift 12 pounds. I go in the next week, I lift 15 pounds. I'm gradually building strength over time because my body's building back more resilient to that stress. So same thing happens when we apply extreme heat or extreme cold. And those, when used appropriately, uh, can create a uh, beneficial effect. And it's actually a term called hormesis, which I'm sure you've probably read and, and maybe discussed, mm -hmm. um, which is just the effect of, of any of these type of things, saying that used at the right dose, they can have a positive effect, where at the wrong dose, they could be deadly. Yeah, what and doesn't any, kill you makes you stronger. Exactly, exactly. So um, that's one of the main reasons we use it. And, and there are a, a host of physiological benefits to using either of those uh, from improving cardiovascular and neuromuscular recovery, improving performance, improving muscle soreness. I'm talking specifically on ice baths there. Um, <clears throat> activating cold shock proteins and, and brown adipose tissue. A whole bunch of physiological things that are really cool. And that's just what we're, we currently know. But a lot of this stuff hasn't been studied extensively at the it's definitely not at the types of protocols that that we're doing at XPT or that uh, the Wim Hof group are doing mm -hmm. there. This stuff hasn't been around for that long and people doing it this frequently with these types of temperatures and exposures. So the research doesn't exist. So we're really postulating on as much of the research as we can to figure out what could possibly be happening. But I'm pretty sure that I guarantee you we're going to see a lot more benefits down the road. And I also guarantee you we're going to see some contraindications because there's always two sides to that coin when you go really far with something. Mm -hmm. um, we just don't know yet. But the stuff that's out there now is really cool. Um, and then on the, the heat side, there's a whole bunch of really positive benefits for disease populations, obese people, diabetics, uh, cancer patients, people with rheumatoid arthritis, and not not in, not decreasing cancer but decreasing pain and, and depression and cancer patients mm. um so there's a whole bunch of really cool stuff that we can use and as long as it's used appropriately these are uh, additional stressors that you can use to stimulate adaptation so you can only train hard so many times before your body breaks down but you can apply other types of stress so that you're continuing to expand that spectrum and, and again help yourself to be as versatile and resilient as possible
Uh, And that's just physiological for me. I think the psychological benefit of that for a lot of people probably even outweighs the physiological. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm average Joe who's working out twice a week and not training super hard, there's definitely some physical benefits because this is like extra doses of exercise. But the psychological benefit of doing things that suck and learning how to mitigate the emotional and physiological stress responses that come up um, and then doing that regularly, I think, well, I know personally, very anecdotally with myself and the dozens of athletes that I've coached through it, as well as thousands of people we've taken through it, um, there's a huge transfer of those abilities to other areas of people's lives. Mm. So I think it's pretty massive and it's, it's super hard to quantify. People want to know the numbers of, uh, you know, performance improvement after muscle damage for elite athletes. And I'm like, yeah, that stuff's cool. And we'll, we'll go through the science on that. But if, if you're waiting on those results, you're missing the boat on some of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I, w- I was that guy five years ago. So mm. that's why I'm trying to speak to that guy now, because I know what it's like to be the natural skeptic and to just want to wait for the peer reviewed evidence that shows performance, you know, blood markers decreased of X, Y, and Z. Um, and I'm not saying anybody should just throw that stuff out because it's important. And that's why it's a big part of what we teach, but mm-hmm. there's definitely a lot more going on than, than what we can currently quantify. Totally. And the, the anecdotal evidence is plentiful and is there. And anyone right. who, who's, um, anyone who, who's doing these types of things can, can attest to that. One thing that I've noticed, I have a steam room at my house and I get that sucker super hot. Um, and I hit it about like four to five times a week now. Um, and one thing that I've noticed that I'm not sure if you could speak to or not is that the euphoric feeling when I step out of the steam room that I'm sure you've experienced when getting out of a sauna, but just like that flood of endorphins and whatnot is very similar to the feeling I get after doing Wim Hof breath work when I've exhaled completely and am holding at the bottom of my breath. Do you think there's some type of connection there? Um, I would say there certainly is a connection because a lot of the feeling you probably get is, is that feeling of those endorphins and hormones being activated that are being activated through some sort of stress. So heat stress is that stress. That's why we get a similar feeling and we get a similar boost in testosterone and growth hormone and, uh, um, beta endorphins and all that stuff that we do from exercise. However, in the Wim Hof breathing, that's also stress to the system. When you do a a long breath hold, you're putting yourself in a super hypoxic state, which is a massive stress to the body. Because if you stay there for another couple minutes, you're going to (laughs) die. So your body is responding by saying, holy shit, you've just cut your blood oxygen saturation in half. Uh, What the hell is going on? let's try to do a bunch of things to keep this idiot alive in case he keeps holding his breath. <laughs> and then it starts to create, you know, same thing it does in the sauna. It's like, Oh, well, I don't know if this guy's going to get out of here. So let's start doing some things to keep him cool and to keep him alive. Uh, and that's where, again, when used the right way, the magic happens. Um, <clears throat> so I would say that there potentially could be some similarities there. I, I can't speak exactly to the neurochemicals and stuff that are being, yeah. Uh, secreted there but that's why you get a similar effect from exercise and from sauna in terms of hormonal responses and and 
neurochemical responses. So I would say it's probably similar similar when you're doing some pretty intense Wim Hof or super ventilation breathing, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you're incorporating those long breath holds because you're getting that big stress response to the body being of hypoxia. And that's an area that we don't know what we don't even know uh, close to what the long-term benefits can be because there's very few research studies that there's a lot of studies on hypoxia, but not hypoxia for those durations. And at those extreme, uh, <clears throat> those extreme lengths of time. Mm. So Interesting. I think there's, I think there's going to be a whole bunch of benefits. And again, a whole bunch of contraindications that are going to come out the more that that stuff's being used in studies. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it just comes down to there is a flood of endorphins that comes with any type of hormesis, and that's kind of just the underlying baseline of what's occurring. So, of course, that the the Wim Hof breathwork is going to be connected to the stress that comes from a sauna that's going to be connected to the stress that comes from an ice bath and getting out of an ice bath because, I mean, I, I, I'm sure you know this, getting out of an ice bath or a cold shower or something. I, I feel like Superman. I've been doing this thing recently where I'm, I'll go on a run, um, an outdoor run near my house. And then before my run, I'll turn on the steam room, come right back from my run down a, a bottle of water, get right into the steam room for like eight to 10 minutes, and then transition from the steam room into a freezing cold shower. And after those three things, dude, I literally feel like I'm superhuman. It's unbelievable the endorphin feelings that i have yeah i mean that's that's a very good process right there yes basically you do anything like that that sucks you know climbing into the ice bath is miserable or getting started on a workout that's going to be really hard is miserable but when you finish those things you feel amazing so Mm -hmm. so real quick just to end with the with the hot and cold how often should people be doing it is this a daily thing and what duration do you typically spend in an ice bath and or sauna and i know sauna depends on temperature but just like in general that is the million dollar question Mm -hmm. i'm going to start off by saying we don't know and when i say we i mean nobody because i've been through all the research and talked to all the experts unless somebody's got a whole bunch of research somewhere that that uh, they're not sharing, it's not out there. Uh, and if they claim to know, they're probably full of crap or they don't understand this stuff fully. But that being said, the way to think about it is like <clears throat> exercise. So when I say how often you should do something, and, and the hard part is how often should you squat? Yeah, It depends so much on well, how heavy are you going? Well, what's your goal? What's your training history? What else are you doing? So what I tell people, the simplest way to think about it is prioritize your strength, your, your, your regular training. You get, if you're not hitting that a minimum of three days a week, don't worry about the other things. Those are additional on top. Do Training comes first. Uh, unless you're injured, you're one of those disease populations who can't train, then we can actually start to use saunas to increase some of the benefit or get some of the similar benefit. Um, but I tell people shoot for three days a week, minimum of training. Then on top of that, add in one to three days of exposure. Uh, and that could be whatever really fits for you. A lot of people that's sauna and sometimes it could be on the same. I like to do the sauna after I train three or four days a week. And then I also add it on other days. Um, but it also depends on the context of what you're looking for. So for example, an ice bath can be really beneficial 
if you use it habitually and, and, and that every day, but, and that's if I'm trying to create long-term habituation to cold and some of that hormetic effect. However, if I'm an athlete or a person, uh, somebody who trains really hard and I'm looking to use it as a recovery modality, I'm actually going to diminish my returns by doing it every single day. So in that mm-hmm. case, I need to use it more sporadically. Um, so I can't give an answer to that because it's just so much. It depends. And then it depends on temperature and duration. Um, but the way to think about temperature and duration is the colder you go, the less time you've got to spend or hotter. <laughs> yeah. So I think about temperature and duration is like weight and reps. If you go really heavy, you don't do as many reps. If you go really light, you've got to do a lot more reps to get the same benefit. Mm. So same thing in a sauna or an ice bath. If the temperature is super high or low, you don't have to spend as much time to get the same benefit. If you don't have the same, the right temperature. So if I have a 220 degree sauna and you have a 175 degree sauna, I might have to stay in for 15 minutes. You might have to stay in for 35 minutes to get the same benefit. And that would be assuming that our physiology was exactly the same at that specific time, which it never will be. Mm. Uh. So the general recommendation we give is we like, or I just tell people the way we do it. We go for, below 40 degree ice bath for three to five minutes for one to two rounds, or I should say one to three rounds. And we actually pair that with the sauna. And we usually go in the sauna and we, we go at 220 degrees. These are all Fahrenheit. That is hot. And we go, yeah, we get them super hot. Most saunas don't go that high. So you probably have to just stay a little longer. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and we go for about 12 to 25 minutes in the sauna. Wow. Uh, and then if you're doing one protocol and not the other, the times are going to change with that. And we'll shoot for about two days a week with okay. a lot of that stuff. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. That 20 minutes in a 220 degree sauna, that is hot. That's crazy. Yeah. It's brutal. Yeah. It's brutal. That's super crazy. My temperature gauge in my sauna says 230, but I don't Dang. know if it, it's hot, but it's up at the top. Is that hot down at the bottom? Obviously not as hot, but it's. Yeah. Yeah, it's wild. hot. That's it starts wild. to burn your burn your ears, <laughs> like your skin on your ears and your face a little bit. <laughs> it's the ultimate hormesis, dude. Burn your burn your <laughs> face off. <laughs> I had a conversation with Laird. We were talking about nose breathing in the sauna, and he's like, "I'm like, do you ever adapt to that? I mean, it's because you just can't do it at these temperatures. Yeah. Uh, if we're giving people breathing protocols, and he's like, well, no, you, you, it has to be slow because as soon as you start to increase the velocity of the air." that's where it starts to burn. Yes. And he goes, but plus I think you'd probably adapt. I mean, you start to do it a lot. I'm sure you'll quarterize it. I was like, <laughs> I don't know if I want to be recommending people. Yeah. Just do it long enough to burn, singe your, no- your nasal passages and then you'll be able to breathe in the sauna. It might not be the best recommendation, <laughs> yeah. but that's, that's how awesome. Laird's mind works. That's amazing. So I know you guys do a lot of underwater pool work as well. Um, part of the XPT protocol. What's the idea behind that type of training and what, does that look like yeah the, the water training is i think one of the coolest and obviously the most unique elements to xpt um and the purpose is there's a whole bunch of anytime we do something new that's a novel stimulus we create new adaptation so that's one of the big reasons that that was kind of developed and um we do a lot of really cool things underwater that the, the benefits that i see for a regular person doing it is 
we deload the impact of a lot of these jumps. So we do a lot of ballistic training in a deeper pool where we take out the impact force. So it allows people to produce some force who maybe can't do that on land, like injured athletes or obese people or people who have uh, just don't have the movement mechanics to produce force. And really, we know where a lot of damage happens is on the landing. So when we mm-hmm. take out that landing, we allow people to really get ballistic and produce force. Um, it It's a really cool way to tie the breathing into training because you're not breathing for a lot of it. So you become very conscious of every breath and very mindful. Uh, and you become mindful overall of the whole movement. I, I personally think the biggest benefit people get from the water training is psychological. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, and, and that's from, again, thousands of anecdotal trials with my UFC fighters and people who come to our experiences, military, all kinds of different stuff. I think the biggest takeaway from all these people is psychological. And, and that's what transcends the pool. Um, but in the pool, there's a whole bunch of good physical effects you can get. We can use it for a recovery benefit to stimulate blood flow. That's what I use it for with my athletes a lot. Um, and that's kind of general pool training you can do. Mm-hmm. But it's a huge physiological and psychological stressor mm-hmm. when we do the training the way we do. And in a very unique envir- environment that adds a huge level of fear, anxiety, and stress to people, um, which creates a lot of room for growth. Uh, and I think it's also a really unique way to learn, again, some really big lessons, like for my fighters, for me, for all of our type A uh, fitness people who come to our retreats, they struggle in the pool because we attack life. We attack situations. We just, if it's not working, push harder. It's go, go more, go faster yeah. in the pool. That doesn't work. And you have to learn the, the balance of, you know, it's not just relaxing and flowing like a yoga class. You're learning this balance of exerting enough force, but, but staying calm and being relaxed. And this is kind of Laird talks like about it. Like it's almost this dance of these two kind of conflicting ideologies that you have to learn how to sync together uh, while you're underwater with no other input, being very mindful of your movement and of what you're doing. And, and you're, you know, as soon as you're underwater, not breathing, nothing else really matters. You're not worried about anything else going on in your life. Uh, so it's a really, really, I think amazing training modality that that's not being used or not being used appropriately. Cause most people, if they do anything in the pool, I mean, what do we think of pool training? You're either swimming a bunch of boring ass laps or you're doing like water aerobics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it speaks to the fact that the most advanced and psychologically strong and uh, physically strong people in the world are doing the are these Navy SEALs doing a ton of pool training and I mean I've heard stories they they l- literally will drown you to develop those different strengths. Um, so I mean the the concept is there, but so so what what does pool training look like? I mean are from the breath to the exercises you're doing underwater. I've seen some pictures and stuff. I know you have some dumbbells, but is it like, okay, hold your breath, sink to the bottom of the pool and do some shoulder presses or. There is some of that stuff. Like that's what we call just pure hypoxic training, which you're basically doing exercises underwater, but that's, that's a very minimal part of it. A lot of it is either swimming or jumping with weights. 
So hmm. for example, we have a lot of different swimming patterns, uh, different exercises that Laird created, which are really the concept is take this weight and get it to that other side of the pool. Mm. And we have a few different ways we've developed to do that. So that we're challenging different positions and it's not just the same thing over and over, but that's a lot of what we're doing. It's holding your breath, swim to the other side, get a couple breaths to recover, swim back, change hands, change positions. Instead of swimming with one arm, now you're going to put the weight in between your legs. You're going to sit in a pike position and you're going to swim, pulling yourself forward. And then you're going to reverse coming backwards. So there's a whole bunch of different, and those are a lot of our shallow water things are more swimming based. Uh, because you can't do loaded jumping in a three and a half foot pool because it kind of takes away the whole benefit. Yeah, um, you could still do jumping. We have a whole bunch of unloaded exercises that are plyometric exercises, calisthenics, different jumping and high knees, and all this kind of stuff that you can do underwater to add a different demand. Mm-hmm. And then as we get into the deeper pool, we do different breath holding stuff. We do a lot of ballistic things where you're breathing, you're you're jumping and breathing, and we have different jumping patterns. So single leg, uh, double leg, one weight, two weights, arms overhead, arms at your sides, all these different positions that we've got these different jumping patterns. And then you're in those, you're sequencing breath with movement. So you jump, you breathe, you land, you do the next thing. Um, but you act most of those things because they're so explosive, you kind of cross that, uh, anaerobic threshold pretty quickly and you end up in a deficit. So then it becomes also learning how to stay relaxed because, you feel like you're drowning the whole time. (laughs) I can imagine when you're swimming is the idea. Like when you say you're swimming with weights, are you guys focusing on swimming underwater with weights? So like carry this weight underwater as far as you can or swim with it underwater as far as you can, and then drop it where you stop, go up, take a breath and then go back under and then do that process. Or is it like trying to actually do the breaststroke and taking breaths every single stroke, getting it across the pool? It's mostly subsurface. Okay, so gotcha. most of the exercises are swimming. One of our most popular exercises that we, we do a lot is called the ammo carry. And uh, I think Laird came up with it either after talking to or seeing military guys carrying a ammo can across a river mm. and trying to swim with this 20 or 25 pound ammo can. Uh, and really that's the concept is the dumbbell is the ammo can. You've got two legs and one arm and you're going to swim underwater while carrying this thing. And we've got some specific strokes that we teach to be efficient in doing that. Uh, so you're not just flailing around, but <laughs> that's, it's a subsurface exercise. So most of those are subsurface. Got you. Got you. Cool, man. This has been awesome PJ. And I feel like I could talk to you for hours and I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Where can people connect with you online and find XBT? Um, I mean, most of the stuff I have is XBT. So xbtlife.com. Uh, XBT life on social, all social media platforms. I put a lot of stuff on my social media too, which is just coach PJ Nestler. Um, but all, a lot of the content, a lot of the, all the courses, all the stuff, all the work I'm doing is going all into XBT. So that's the best place to, to connect with that. Unless you want to just see some of my random rants and musings <laughs> on my social media. Which are interesting to say the least. Uh, <laughs> you're a good follow, man. I'll put all the links to your socials and the XPTs and whatnot in the show notes for people to check out. You guys also have a bunch of YouTube videos, which are super helpful. So I'll definitely do that. Awesome. Thank you, Thank man. You. You've been awesome. I appreciate it. Hey, this is my pleasure. This is a, a fun conversation. Thanks, man. All right, guys. Later. Special thanks to King's Kaleidoscope for the instrumental used on the intro and outro of this podcast. 
Also, a big thanks to the good people over at Capital Floats, which is Northern California's premier sensory deprivation or float tank facility. I am a frequent user there, and I absolutely love it. And for listeners of this podcast, they're offering an exclusive deal, which is three floats for $120 or 20% off the normal price. Just go to capitalfloats.com, choose the three float intro package, and use the promo code LIFEENCHANTED with no spaces at checkout. Please remember that I am not a doctor, so definitely consult with your physician before making any sudden diet, supplement, or lifestyle changes suggested on any of these episodes. If you're interested in connecting with me, you can send an email to nick, N-I-C-K, at mylifeenchanted.com, or you can find me on Instagram at mylifeenchanted. Peace.